Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We pray the true and living God will be with us, you, us, everybody here tonight. Uh, listen, here's what's going on in the ministry. Uh, new informational spots, just go on there and you can see them over to the right. Check those out. Uh, book will be going to Kindle. We'll let you know. Aaron T. in Arizona is translating all Heart of the Matters into Spanish. You can go to the YouTube address there. Just type in Mormonus para Jesus, and you'll be able to see a Heart of the Matter in Spanish. So tell your Spanish-speaking family and friends. We uh, uh, have asked you to help us reach TV20 to get Heart of the Matter back on local Utah television. Please take the time, go to our website. At the top of the homepage is a link. You click it, it brings up a form that's really simple to fill out. Type your thoughts. We will print it once it's submitted and give it to the owners. Don't send letters to the station. They aren't getting to the owners. There's a little bit of a personality problem going on, but we can overcome that with God. John, our tech has made all this possible. And then finally, we are making the Temple DVD in full, which we showed it over five or six shows. We're making that available in full to you. Uh, thanks to um, Larry and Phyllis G. And so you can either come to the show on Tuesday nights and we'll give you one. We've had a lot of people do that. You can come to campus on Sundays too, for that matter. Or you can write uh, and order something from the website and we'll send them free, gratis, with any book, t-shirt, whatever it is that you get. All of it's happening at HOTM.TV. On Saturday afternoon, while I was here in Salt Lake City mowing the lawn, or better said, the weeds, uh, I received an unexpected text message from my younger, very LDS brother. Our relationship is so tenuous that I only hear from him on my birthday with a text usually or a call. To me, that's like going to church on Christmas only and thinking you have a relationship with God. I've, I've never understood the thinking on that, but anyway. Uh, so getting a text from him is very unusual. And what did it say? You ought to listen to conference today to Elder Uchtdorf's talk. Why, I wrote back, he said, I think you'll relate to what he's saying. Again, I said, why? What's the subject? And he replied, you. Uh, it appears Uchtdorf talked about people who leave the LDS church. I don't listen to general conferences. I typically read uh, parts of them later on, but apparently Uchtdorf gave a powerful presentation from those who heard of it, Christian and, and Mormon alike, uh, about those who leave the LDS church. Now, I don't have the speech printed out, so once I get that next week, I'll cover that in more detail. But there was a quote that Apostle Uchtdorf used. It is, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Now, I'm a fairly smart guy. I understand some things, but I had to ponder that one, and I thought, now, what is he really saying? Doubt your doubt before you doubt your faith. Did Uchtdorf really say this? And so I did a little research, and he did say it, but he didn't create it. Apostle Uchtdorf quoted an actor named Chase Crawford, who is the one who coined that phrase, and uh, he's known for his stellar television work in Gossip Girl. Uh, it's unbelievable that he pulled from pop culture, a television actor came up with that quote, and Uchtdorf, an apostle, supposedly of the Lord Jesus Christ, applied it to his appeal of uh, people questioning Mormonism. 
We'll comment more on that next week. In addition to Uchtdorf's inspiring remarks, there are a few other gems that these supposedly inspired men shared uh, at General Conference. Speaking of the forgiveness of sin, boy KKK Packard said, just as chalk can be removed from a chalkboard with sincere repentance, the effects of our transgression can be erased through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, is that how it works, Boyd, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Sin can be removed with sincere repentance. Is that, is that how it works? The picture he's painting for us, and we've talked about this before, is every time we do something wrong, Jesus is standing there and he says, okay, let's see, is the blood gonna be applied or not in this case? All right, let's see if we have repentance, all right? Have you felt sorrow? Did you confess? Did you are scar? I mean, all the steps, and if proper repentance is done, then Jesus the janitor comes in and he'll clean up your sin mess. That's what these lines and sentences tend to infer. Uh, I'll have you know that sin was completely wiped away, past, present, and future, once and for all, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and what you are preaching uh, Boyd K is religious bondage. Uh, we repent for failing to trust in his finished work, Boyd. We don't repent for every failure because it's impossible and we'd spend our entire lives, Boyd, you would too, at the chalkboard trying to erase. Every day you'd be erasing by your thoughts, by your heart, by your, just your carnal man, by the outright sins that you commit. So your idea is insane and it puts people in bondage. Hand in hand with Boyd's perspective on the atonement, apostle, supposedly Richard G. Scott, added his own religious smut to the mix, saying, quote, it is a fundamental truth that through the atonement of Jesus Christ, we can be cleansed. Now, again, it seems to me he's talking to members of the church, and again, he's saying they can be, not that they have been. That's Part of the problem with Mormonism is everything is predicated on what you do, not what Jesus did. It's one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and Mormonism is Christians say, Lord Jesus, thank you for doing the work, finished work, sitting down at the right hand of God. Thank you, we trust in you, and that's what it is. But can be cleansed. Again, Jesus the janitor, don't like the idea. Not a picture of the biblical Christ who has cleared all sins away. And you know, <clears throat> when I read this stuff from these self-appointed apostles, I get taken back by the inanity of their perspective. These guys are supposed to be people who actually talk with Jesus Christ. Holland really struck a nerve with me this time. I mean, just listen to the idiocy of Apostle, one of Apostle Jeffrey Holland's remarks. He said, imperfect people are all God has ever had to work with. Listen to this insight. That must be terribly frustrating to him, but he deals with it. Uh, this guy is a buffoon, man. I'm sorry, a buffoon. He is, imperfect people, it sounds like he's projecting, like this is how he feels. All I can do, I, I mean, I'm really terribly frustrated with all these people who are so imperfect, but I'll deal with it. I, I, I don't, God is love, Holland. Do you realize that? He is love. and. He, he more perfectly fills 1 Corinthians 13's description of love than you can ever imagine. Do you actually think that he is there saying, gosh, all I got are imperfect people. I'll deal with it. 
what is wrong with you? I mean, you're just a, it's just unbelievable that you call yourself an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and you can come out with something like that. It's appalling. Then Elder Ballard, uh, putting LDS in further bondage, said this. It's impossible to fail when you do your best when you are on the Lord's errand. All right, so there you go, bondage, you go handcuffs, and what it does is anybody who's Mormon hears that, and they're, okay, I have got to do my very, very best in everything I do in this church so that I won't fail. The Lord won't fail me if I do my very, very best. I got a different perspective for you. How about it's impossible to fail when you're on the Lord's errand? It doesn't matter how bad off you are in terms of your application. You will not fail if you're on his errand. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with him. Completely lost on you guys who call yourselves apostles. And with that, how about a minute from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. <coughs> One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw. And behold, a white horse. In light of this past week's LDS General Conference, where men who claim to be apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ stand before millions and sprout spiritually sophomoric rhetoric, what does the Word of God have to say about apostles? Apostles, the word simply means one sent. It could be a man or a woman who is sent from one house to the next. It could be a secular meaning. It could be a spiritual meaning. It could mean angels sent from heaven, somebody sent on a mission trip. It could mean 12 men called by Jesus to witness his resurrection and go forth into the world and share the message. By the way, these LDS men use the title, it, they claim that they are a continuation of the 12 apostles that Christ established when he was on this earth. How can I say this? Because Jesus, uh, but excuse me, what they don't understand is Christ is the fulfillment of apostleship, he's the fulfillment of prophets, he's the fulfillment of all those things. I say this because that's what the word says. First, Jesus trained his 12 for a very special purpose. Trained by him personally, witnessed him resurrect, did miracles in his name, apostles here in Utah, and gave their very lives for the cause, suffering like you can't believe, many of them being martyred. Uh, and when they, uh, but we have, what we have here in Utah are these phony yokels who are nothing like the 12. They are hailed by millions. You don't talk to them unless they talk to you first. You stand when they walk into a room. They're rewarded with wealth and luxury when scripture plainly tells us that it is Jesus who is our apostle and high priest of our profession. That's in Hebrews chapter three, verse one. Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our profession. Paul speaking of the 12 who were alive during Jesus' time plainly lays out that they were the last of all. Listen to him, he says, for I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death, for we were made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. That's in 1 Corinthians 4, 9. This is cutting off this apostolic succession that the LDS claim is so important. In fact, the word takes the time to describe the apostles uh, that we just heard from and their quotes saying, for such are false apostles, 
deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Perfect description, in my opinion, uh, for what we see in the apostleships. I hope that Uchtdorf and Ballard and Holland and the rest of them heard this, uh, because you're deceitful workers who transform yourselves into apostles of Christ. Speaking of deceitful workers, before we go to our message for tonight, let me share a story with you, a true story from my own life. It's a story of two men, both now dead, and both who had a profound impact on my makeup, my worldview, and how I came to know and understand God. Interestingly, both of them bore the name Smith, which I think is really interesting because in an occupational sense, a Smith is one Smith smiting, that's where they get the word smith because they smite, smite uh, metal that's heated up. They're smiters of metal. And, it, they, and so they're shaping. And these two smiths helped shape and forge uh, who I was in my character. I was introduced to the first smith as an infant and a toddler, Joseph Smith. He forged in my heart and head ideas that God was once a man that Jesus is my elder brother and that I came from a pre-existent state where I did good. I was so good that I was born into an LDS home while my colored cousins of different lands were pretty much inferior. This, this Smith taught me that I must receive ordinances that he restored to the earth, ordinances that were lost because what Jesus established failed and was overcome by uh, apostasy, and he needed to come and make it right. He taught me that I could not trust the Bible completely, but that I could trust his books and his revelations, his ideas on spiritual things completely. He taught me that I needed to receive a priesthood, that I was to serve a mission that brought people into the church that he formed in 1830, and that I would get an opportunity to have extra wives if I lived well and uh, decided to have them after this life. This Smith convinced me that I had to repent constantly for external sin, that faith in Jesus is not enough to cover them, and that if I obeyed everything that he taught throughout my life, temple attending into the temple rites he established, that my wife and kids could be sealed to me and I could go on to become a god. And while many of the things Joseph Smith claimed and established, all of them served to imprison me in the end, and I was willing to take, uh, and uh, they imprisoned me so much that it weighed me down, did not free me. He put me in bondage to his institution. He burdened me with fear, rebellion, and guilt by and through a false gospel. After 40 years of Joseph Smith, I came to meet Jesus who changed my heart and let me know that even as a sinner, he had saved me. Shortly thereafter, I came in close contact with another Smith, Chuck Smith, who died last week at the age of 86. Once the Holy Spirit had regenerated my heart, heating it up to be reformed, this Smith, with blow after blow taken directly from the Word of God, helped reform my former man into a new creature of Christ. He proved through sound instruction from the Bible that God is one 
that he has always existed, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he came from above, but I came from below, and that the Bible could be trusted. This Smith, when I uh, attempted to look to him and congratulate him, always redirected me to God, always pointed me to trusting in God, always put Jesus ahead of everything else. Instead of feeding me ideas from his imagination, he selflessly fed me and thousands, if not millions of others, the word. Instead of a burden, he taught freedom in Christ. Instead of religion, he taught relationship directly with the Lord. He taught me about grace, about salvation, about love, which sometimes is best manifested in truth that is delivered hard. He taught me from the Bible, knew the Bible, and stood by the Bible without feeding his own ego and needs and desires. He proved that appearances meant nothing as he let thousands of barefooted hippies flow into the sanctuary of his church when the religionists around him looked down their noses and said that this was wrong. And then years ago, when we were coming up to Utah and had no money to do it, the board of directors for Calvary Chapel that he oversaw unitedly said we should not support Sean McCraney coming to Utah. The title of his book, Born Again Mormon, is too controversial. And Chuck Smith, giving the final say, stood up and said, I want him to go. Neither Smith was perfect. They're both just men. And both of them are now dead dead in the flesh. But one of them I know is alive in the spirit. The difference between them is one taught his own vision and demanded compliance to it for salvation and the other relentlessly taught, lifted and promoted Jesus. Thank you, Pastor Chuck Smith, for your work for the king. Your love for him has helped me and freed many, many, many people who are still in bondage to that other Smith. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for faith and for the ability to love when it's not within us. Let us be a people of faith who relax and trust in you. To do otherwise, Lord, is, a, a, is, is, is not faith. It's weakness, and we trust you, Lord, so help our faith. We pray for those who are searching for truth, however they will find it through this program, all of our volunteers and staff who are doing things tonight on the programs, here in the audience and out there. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we explained how Mormonism, or more to the point, Joseph Smith and his view of truth was in some ways a direct response to Reformed theology or five-point Calvinism. We had a caller, Tom, who I dealt with abruptly, not because his opinions differed, please understand with mine, but because he had an agenda when he called and he knew it. So I cut him off. And uh, some of you have complained. I grew up a middle child of six kids and um, we all had loved music. It was always in our lives from the Everly Brothers to Elvis to Beatles, Hendrix, Zeppelin, Smiths, 311, I've been exposed. But I resonated most strongly as a kid to punk. I got my first album, Sex Pistols album, and I have loved punk ever since. Why? Because in my opinion, after everything is said and done, punk includes a mentality that exists outside of the music. And I know it can be evil, so I don't like that part of it, but it's about honesty and transparency 
and, and it can be brutal. It can be even rude in its search for truth. It wants truth. And I know that sounds like a strange, and it is a secular application. So come and talk to me with all you have, and I'll give you all the time in the world. But if you're a politicker or you're out to feign, go jump off a cliff. Don't call, don't write emails and feign your little games about what you're doing in here. And our caller, Tom, he had an agenda and it was hidden and I don't appreciate it. Talk to me, I'll give you the straight thing. Wanna know my sin? I'll tell you. You wanna know anything about me? I'll tell you. You wanna know my heart? I'll tell you. You tell me yours, but don't call and do games. So the caller last week with this agenda asked me point blank, are you a universalist? He had an agenda behind this, and I explained that no, I was not, and I explained what universalism was. Well, we received this email from Chris who said, for you to simply say to the caller last week, God just created some people to damn them to hell for his own pleasure as some kind of representation of Calvinism is just, well, it's sad. He goes on in what seems to be an effort to make me feel guilty. I've listened to every single episode you've ever put on the web. I've promoted you to all my friends and family and I've grown a lot in my understanding of Mormonism from you. After all these years, I thought you were more thoughtful than this. This purposeful, simplistic description of Calvinism is below you, man. You're deeper than this. You're better than this. This is a ridiculous one-line summary of what Calvinism stands for, my friend. I emailed you several months ago, kind of excited to hear you were going to talk about the subject because typically you're pretty thorough and fair. I remember simply asking you for one thing, to accurately represent Calvinism in your presentation. Doesn't matter to me if you want to argue it, but please do the subject matter respect it deserves by accurately representing your opponent's position, end quote. Before we proceed, I want to address some of Chris's observations. They flow into what we're talking about. One of the things that has made our assessment of Mormonism, what it is, is our ability to Da, 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 get to the heart of the matter. That's what we try to do. There are things that can be boiled down to their lowest, no pun intended, common denominator. Even though I pulled a punch on the caller last week and jumped ahead and didn't have a bunch of background uh, stuff to give you my assessment of what it's based on, still, um, it, boi it was boiled down to the common denominator. So Chris, the writer, you might have a whole library established to show and explain Calvinism, um, you might be able to show that there are reasons why God would make such a stand, all of that stuff. But here's the heart of the matter, Chris. If God has always existed everywhere, he's om om omnipresent, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, and if punishment after this life is eternal, Chris, then, this is the big if then, Prior to doing anything, Chris, forming the earth, the heavens, animals, man, he knew completely and fully that some of his creations that had not been made yet were going to go to hell and burn there forever and ever and ever and ever. And he created them anyway. If that's the case, this means, Chris, he created them for hell. Now you can jump around it all you want, you can give me books and everything else, but in the end, you will have to agree with that premise. You can try and say all kinds of other things, but this is what the Calvinists believe. It offended you because I didn't give a bunch of stuff around it. Now, additionally, if God out of his own good will and purposes creates some he knows 
he will elect, according to you. He does the election, according to Calvinists. And I mentioned that, and that angered you too. If he does that, again, out of his own will and pleasure, and they can be saved and escape hell, then he has created them for life eternal. Okay? He has said this, and I know there are passages that you can use, but not in context of the a whole uh, uh, body of scripture. You can pull some about the potter and the clay. You can, I know you can pull from Romans and you can pull some verses there, but in the context of scripture, I would say those need to be understood contextually and are not. There's no way around these points. No matter how much information you want me to go through, no matter how many papers I read, um, this is the sum. So while the caller last week got me to reveal my hand before giving background information, which I wanted to do and I'm going to do, um, the heart of the matter is I stand by those two premises, and we'll talk about more. Prove me wrong. So last week, we talked about how growing up in an environment swirling with doctrinal disputes on how Christianity was supposed to look, Joseph Smith made some decisions uh, in the face of parents who were arguing about religion, in the face of a community that was arguing about religion, and from his own personal opinions and things he liked and didn't like, and he decided that he was going to come up with some truths, so to speak. Looking backward from 1830, when Smith established the LDS Church, religious factions had dominated the Christian landscape almost from the moment uh, the temple fell in Jerusalem. There has been division and discussions and debates ever since that time. We understand the Catholic influence on Christianity, and that's a 10-year that's a topic of, uh, of what that was. So I won't go into it, but moving out, we can see that even centuries before Joseph Smith was, took his first breath, theological debates had been raging. Early reformers who stood against uh, Catholicism, like John Huss in 1395, Martin Luther in 1510, got in the face of the Catholics' priestly control over man through religion, and they emphasized sola fide, which was so, pure faith, sole faith, faith alone, okay? And they also emphasize sola scriptura, which means basically that anybody can read the Bible without priestly intervention and come to saving faith and learn all that God wants them to know. That's sola fide, sola scriptura. But Luther, for whatever reason, couldn't entirely cut the cord from Catholicism and Lutheranism the Lutheran church still has vestiges of, 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 of Catholicism in its church. In any case, the ideas of sola fide and sola scriptura angered the Catholic superstructure, the popes, the priests, the bishops, they hated it because according to those Protestants, popes and priests weren't needed anymore. And this reformation scared the heck out of them. Imagine the thought, men and women could get to God without the intervention of others. Oh, that's, that's revolutionary, isn't it? Well, men hated that, especially religious men. The early reformers, including John Calvin, agreed with that stance. They, John Calvin, he was fine in that stance. Listen, sola scriptura, uh, uh, sola fide, great stuff. Now, remember, last week we touched on the core essentials of biblical Christianity. We noted five points. There may be more or less. So while the Catholics and the Protestants differ a lot in many areas, and I know there's some hair-splitting things we could talk about here. And, and even within Protestantism, there are divisions between the core issues uh, too. But all of these groups are pretty much 
could be included to believe that there is only one God, that was, one, that was the first core issue, that Jesus was God incarnate, they agree with that. They accept the biblical definition of the good news, which is that he was born, he, was, he died, he suffered for sin, he died, was buried and rose on the third day and was witnessed as a resurrected being by many. That's the definition of the gospel according to 1 Corinthians and Paul. That humankind is saved by grace through faith on him and his finished work. And the fifth one we said was there's no other way to receive forgiveness of sin. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No other way but him and his blood. Reformed theology, also known as Calvinism or five-point Calvinism, brings beliefs to the discussion that are not essential to salvation, in my opinion, but their presence in a Christian's life certainly affect the way people view God and life, missionary work, themselves having been elected, and other things relative to being a Christian. John Calvin was a French theologian who broke from the Catholic Church in 1530. And he be, because of persecution, he fled to Switzerland and he started to write and publish his thoughts then. While he was there, he also started to form a church in Geneva. And because of his writing, including letters to other people and books and treatises, his system and views on theology are clearly understood as being heavily influenced by Augustine, also known as Augustine, also known by August. Uh, now, Augustine goes way, way back to the third and fourth centuries, and due to his views on grace and salvation, many Protestants, especially Calvinists, view him as one of the early theological fathers of the Protestant Reformation. Here's the deal. Calvin died in 1564, but as noted, he left an awful lot of work behind, and he, his, it, they established his views clearly. A man rose up named Jacobus Arminius, he didn't appreciate Calvin's writings, and um, those who agreed with Arminius became known as remonstrants, and, uh, which basically means strong protesters. They strongly protested against what Calvin was suggesting, and Calvin's doctrine was ruling at the time, pretty much, among Protestants. So what we had were Protestant followers of Arminius protesting against the teachings of Calvin, who is now dead. And now Arminius was dead. So these, these people are fighting. One year after Arminius died in 1610, 46 years after Calvin died, a theological statement that is known as the Remonstrance was drawn up and 45 ministers signed it. This was rebellion to Cal against Calvin's theology. And that was the beginning of what today is still known as Dutch Arminianism, uh, which it was stood in the face of the Dutch Reformed Church. Well, a group of very worried men got together and a trial of sorts was held in 1618 to test Arminianism's claims. And what they used to test the claims for validity were Calvin's claims. So we have this setting side by side, this Comparison. This trial was held in a Dutch city called Dorecht, and today the results are known as the Canon of Dort, short for Dorecht, and uh, the title for it really is the decision of the Synod of Dort on the five main points of doctrine in dispute in the Netherlands. Now, uh, today, as a result of this trial, again called the Canons of Dort, those are the results, they serve as the doctrinal foundation for Reformed theology, for Calvinism, all right? 
When the followers of Arminius set forth their article of faith in 1610, um, there were five of them that were presented. So Arminius presented, the Arminian, followers of Arminian, Arminius presented their five stances. And it was in response to their disagreement with Calvin. They deemed Calvinism the victor and the canons established served as a judgment of the synod against the remonstrance. So Arminius lost in that battle. What many people don't realize is that the synod or council of Dort, only 13 Arminians uh, were present or represented there and they weren't allowed to vote. Okay, so this had a huge impact on what is being done in Protestant churches today. As a result, Calvin's system became a major part of Orthodox Christianity's statement of faith and eventually was incorporated in 1646 into a significant Church of England document known as the Westminster Confession of Faith, a document fairly embedded in the minds of early American preachers uh, during Joseph Smith's day. So this is the connection, how it got down to Smith, Calvinism, and how it made its way through and got through so prevalently in Joseph Smith. In the end, Arminianism suggested these five points. You ready? I think we have a graphic. Freedom of the will, conditional election, universal atonement, resistible grace, and the ability to fall from grace. Those were Arminius' five points against the Calvin doctrine. And in an attack against such things, Calvinism was summarized later as saying that a man is, here's the thing, totally depraved, unconditionally elected by God. Jesus' atonement was not universal. That could be disputed. We'll talk about it uh, in terms of Calvinism. That his grace extended not to... Um, that his grace could not be resisted, and that uh, once a saint had been chosen by God's sovereign will, they would persevere, meaning once saved, always saved. So next week, we're gonna break them down, showing that Joseph Smith and Arminius had much more in common than Smith and Calvin, which, in my opinion, explains why Mormonism is so attractive to the people the world over, and, and why people who hear Calvinism as an option will automatically walk from it. And I'll, and I'll try to make that case. So we'll start first with total depravity. Let's open up the phone lines. 801. 590-8413. And while we're waiting to take your calls and the operators are clearing them, take a, a minute and look at this spot. quick. All right, uh, we have Alex on line one, Salt Lake City. Alex, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Um, 
I just had a comment to make about the uh, picture of Jesus that the LDS use. Yeah. Um, I, when I was a boy in seminary, they had, that the apostles um, saw Jesus and like did sort of a criminal sketch thing with the artist of the painting, Del Parsons. Yeah. And, and Del Parsons has come out on his website and said that this is not the case. Like, I never met with the apostles. I just gave them a few paintings, and they picked out which one they wanted. Huh. And uh, the the apostles never come out and said, you know, this isn't the case. They always just lie about it. Oh, really? I didn't even that know that. That sort of me off, yeah. Yeah, I don't blame you. You know, the one I remember most from being LDS was Solomon's painting. Uh, Jesus is very tan and the light is shining on him in a specific way, and it was a Catholic painting, and the LDS loved that painting. They put it all over. It's much more politically kind of 1950s, 60s, but the interesting thing about that painting is if you look at it, you can see the wafer in the light of his forehead, and then you see the goblet for the a cup for communion in his uh, the shadow of the side of his face. I don't uh -huh. think the LDS knew that when they purchased those for all their buildings. I didn't know anything about that painting. Yeah, check it out, Alex. Hey, thanks for watching. Tell your friends. Yeah, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. From Tony, now that you've left the church, I was wondering if you still obey the word of wisdom. For those of you who aren't aware of what the word of wisdom is, it's really the LDS Health Code, uh, Doctrine and Covenants 89. Uh, we have a member of the audience who knows it well. Uh, it's interpreted um, modernly to mean no coffee or tea, um, and it also includes uh, no alcohol. So you can't drink alcohol if you're, if you're obeying the word of wisdom. It also includes no tobacco. Fine, fine blend there <laughs> of paper. <laughs> and no harmful drugs. So, uh, Here's the thing, it is such an overriding, um, just important thing to them. It's really become more important to them than Jesus sometimes. That Elizabeth Smart, she was the girl who was kidnapped and raped repeatedly uh, in the hills by uh, Mitchell, who was a former LDS temple worker and his wife. Uh, he made her his wife supposedly and then, and then consummated that over and over again while he held her captive. Uh, she writes in her new book that it was him forcing her to drink alcohol that was the worst part of the experience. That is how ingrained they push this thing because what it does is it makes an us versus them mentality. And when you can keep that alive and going in a community, you dominate, you rule because your people are separated by these activities. It's really heinous. Uh, Jesus said plainly, it's not what goes in. It's what comes out, meaning it's what comes out of your mouth that uh, is, is the thing that defiles you. So, no, I, I don't observe the word of wisdom, Sabbath day, ban on R-rated movies, law of tithes. Uh, I'm not saying people don't, Christians, if they want to obey the Sabbath day, according to the Jewish law, they can try. If they want to pay tithing, you want to do that, go ahead. You want to not watch R-rated movies, fine. You don't want to drink, probably better for you. I don't observe all those things. If I want to have a drink, I'll have it. I usually don't, and so that's how it is. Okay, um, Darlene J writes, my husband is LDS and says that the priesthood 
is everything that no other church lays claim to, um, except the Catholics, how do I respond? Uh, we've been talking about this in Hebrews, and that's kind of why I pulled this out, because it's fresh on my mind, but bottom line, there was a Levitical priesthood, Old Testament, that was done away with, if you read the book of Hebrews, when Christ came. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, if the Levitical priesthood could have brought us to, to God, then Christ didn't need to come. It was done away with. The Levitical priests, through Aaron's line, through Kohath, what they did was work in the temple, and they prepared all the animal sacrifices. They did all the blood. They did all that stuff. Once a year, the high priest, the chief priest over all of them would go in and administer that. Uh, Hebrews 7, 8 speaks of this priesthood being completed in Christ, our new high priest. Uh, the other thing is, we mentioned this the other day, is the name priest in terms of an office in Biblical Christianity is not named in the New Testament. We have pastors, evangelists, bishops, episkopos, if you want to look at the Greek, elders. We have all the teachers, all those things, but priest is not there. You will not find the term priest or high priest associated with anybody in the Christian church. Why? Because in the Old Testament, a priest would offer up blood. And in the Old Testament, the priest would offer up gifts, oblations to God. Well, now... Is a priest going to be doing those things? No. That is a priest's job. Offer up blood. Offer up gifts. Well, Jesus offered up his own blood. What do we need a priest for? That's what priests do. So to say somebody's a priest in your church is really a scary thought. Because what you're saying is we're going to continue to offer up blood when Hebrews makes it clear, hey, Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies with his own blood, and it's offered once and for all, so put away that idea. So priesthood over, LDS false. Uh, final nail in that coffin is read Grant Palmer's book, An Insider View of Mormon Origins, because that will show you how Joseph Smith's concoction of receiving a priesthood was totally fabricated. There is, he just proves this thing was a myth in the making. And uh, so that will help you too, Darlene J, when it comes to priesthood. Uh, hey, our work is going out across the nation and the world, but it has limited access here in Utah. It's only going to those who can afford or who desire direct TV. We need it to get to the masses who channel surf. And the only way that's going to happen, it's not going to happen with KSL here in the state. It's not going to happen with any other station except one, and that's TV20. It's the only Christian television station that's on Comcast and on regular television. And we've had a little issue with the management. I caused the problem, admittedly. I've repented. We've sent letters. We've given apologies. The owners want us back on. But there's an there's a issue with the management not really wanting me there. And uh, I can get that. And we can work through that, but we need your prayers and we need your letters. So go to www.hotm.tv at the top of the front page. Click on that. Fill out the boxes. Submit it. It will come to us. We'll take it to the owners in our petition to try to get back for the good of uh, the LDS who can't afford DirecTV and are searching and channel surfing. Reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Sean, what are the names of the churches you attended that got you so upset back in December and January? It would help us who, when we church shop to know what to avoid. Um, we visited a number of local churches. Uh, we have never, ever said publicly or privately what churches they were. So I want to make that clear. Uh, I, I don't believe, I mean, I, I don't think I've told anybody 
what they were. I've had people ask, many people say, come on, tell us, tell us, tell us, was this one, was this one? And, uh, but no, we don't tell them. And um, I made a mistake in making that my battle, but understand, I'm not apologetic for what I saw and what caused me to get angry. I still stand by what I think is not good. I think there's a better way to feed the sheep in Utah. Uh, But telling you what churches they are isn't gonna happen. Uh, Went to a lot of them and, and, and just leave it at that. Uh, and another announcement, a sad announcement, AM820, a great Christian radio station here in the state, has refused to air replays a part of the matter any longer as well. Two reasons. One, uh, we had four church services where we went through the Bible and pulled out where uh, I suggested there is a, a potentiality for the eternality of hell or punishment to not exist, that it could be possible, could be possible, didn't say it was, could be possible that after 100 trillion billion years, people will pop out of the lake of fire. Um, that was the discussion. The second thing is on our campus website, I, 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 I suggest a number of people that people who are interested in Christian anarchy read. One of them, his name is Greg Boyd. He is a pastor of a church in Minnesota. And Greg Boyd is also known as an open theist. On the website we write, we do not recommend Greg Boyd's insights on open theism, but he has good insights on Christian anarchy. And that was the second reason uh, we tried to work with the management of uh, the radio station and tell them you're one of the last voices that comes out to the people here in this state, uh, except for streaming video that we do. And it didn't matter. I mean, it really worries me that from the pulpit, if you can't voice an opinion from the Bible of what you see, you can say you're not sure, but just to voice those opinions will shut down ministries that do a lot to reach people with the truth. That really scares me. It really is frightening. I hate to see it. All right, uh, one other thing, and we're gonna wrap it up. The LDS Church publicly condemned the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to bolster same-sex marriages in California in a statement issued within hours of the Supreme Court's affirmative rulings in July of 2013. A church spokesman criticized the judicial system and reaffirmed the LDS Church's commitment to strengthening traditional marriages between a man and a woman. As Hawaii is poised to consider the marriage equality bill, the LDS Church, which is a large presence in Hawaii, has again entered the fight on same-sex marriage issue. In a letter dated September 15th, 2013, LDS leaders across the state are encouraging Hawaiian Mormons to study the proposed legislation and then as private citizens contact their elected representatives in the Hawaiian legislature to express their views. The letter tells the members of the church on the topic to consider reading a proclamation to the world on the family, a document that endorses one man and one woman as the ideal for marriage. I'm fully supportive of that. Here's the problem, the hypocrisy. Um, So where they're fighting against same-sex marriages, uh, researcher Helen Radke in her article on the Mormon marriage hypocrisy points out that Mormonism continues to endorse polygamy, both spiritually and in practice. So where they have made a stance and said, we stand for one woman to one man against homosexual marriage, which is fine, no problem, uh, if you wanna get involved in those politics, I'm just speaking on, on principle here, but for them, 
It's, it's a doctrine and a practice. Three of their current apostles are polygamists. They have married for time and all eternity more than one woman. And, uh, and you can go to Church Temple Records if you read Helen Radke's article, and you can see that, that continually, even up to this day and age, women are being sealed to Joseph Smith and to Brigham Young and to other church leaders posthumously. They believe in the principle of polygamy, one of the twin relics of barbarism in early America, and yet they are out there condemning another form of, of bastardized marriage. It's the hypocrisy that drives me nuts. If they say, hey, marriage is this, and this is what we stand on, like the Christian community does, if they want to get involved in that stuff, feel free. I think it's a waste of time. But they want to do it, okay. But the hypocrisy is not really looked at. You want to see, read Helen Radke's article, look up Mormon marriage between a man and a woman for the living, polygamy for the dead by Helen Radke, dated October 2nd, October 1st, 2013. And you'll see what that is all about. We appreciate your uh, love and support, your prayers, your letters. We uh, pray that you will continue to tune in and tell your family and friends about Heart of the Matter so we can continue to move forward and try to reach people who are searching for truth, whether Mormon or not. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Anybody care for the rest of it?